Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I hope you're all peaceful. I'm your co-host, Shahna Saqani. Today, we speak with Falguni Sheth about her book, Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab. In Unruly Women, Falguni explores the multiple ways that liberalism is understood and exploited, and liberalism's origin as a project of British colonialism and as a legacy of settler colonialism in the US. The Unruly Women, in the author's title, are in liberalism, women who do not conform or who are not, to quote the author, suitably feminist, like Muslim women who veil or black women who really simply just exist. Falguni argues that certain key terms such as professionalism, dismissiveness, excruciation onto politics and address are crucial to our understandings of the ways that women of color are are treated in legal cases and in the broader culture as well as our understanding of the psychic violence that liberalism and colonialism perpetuate on women of color. In our interview today, we discuss liberalism as a problem in theory too, not just in practice, and its connections to the prejudice and discrimination faced by different groups of women of color. We also talk about the ways that feminism is defined by liberal and radical Western feminists, the limitations of such understandings, specific Supreme Court cases, and other legal cases involving discrimination against Muslim women. And the author also explains the significance of political theory, liberal feminist theory, and theories of power to her arguments in the book overall. This here is my interview with Falguni Shet. Hi, Falguni. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your very, very amazing book and very helpful and I think incredibly relevant book, Unruly Women, Race, Neo-Colonialism, and the Hijab. I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about this book. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to, to have a conversation with you. It's been a, it's been a, a while. It's, it's a long time coming, so it's great. I um, loved the book. I loved how theoretically sophisticated it is. I have um, notes all over. And one of the most common uh, phrases that I've written all around is good point, good point, good point. Whoa, this is powerful. So uh, thank you for articulating a lot of these very serious problems and for theorizing um, some of the issues that we're facing and for drawing connections, um, you know, drawing connections and, pa- you know, like, uh, noting patterns and things like that. So I think I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I, I, I know for a fact, I'll be using it in many of my classes. Um, so our first question to our authors is to ask them who they are, uh, where they're currently located, what their training is, what their intellectual journey has been like. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am uh, currently teaching in the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Emory University. Um, I have been there for about eight years, and I arrived from a little college in Western Massachusetts uh, called Hampshire College, where I taught philosophy. My philosophy and politics, and frankly, race theory and a lot of other things. Um, My PhD is in philosophy from the New School. And one of the lovely things about the new school is that it's it has a very heavy emphasis on interdisciplinarity. So I, you know, I've always wanted that. Um, and so I took classes in constitutional law, political science, anthropology, sociology, et cetera, in addition to doing a PhD in philosophy. So 
I, I am generally interested in interdisciplinary and broad liberal arts work. Um, so that's where I started. Um, I will say that my first tenure track, my first day of teaching at a tenure track place was Hampshire, and it was also 9-11. Um, so in a way, in many ways, and in, in almost every way, it kind of it marks my the trajectory of my intellectual life and my academic career. Um, I was set to teach a class at, at 9.30 and the towers were hit at 8.15 and I was in my brand new office preparing at the time. And while I had always done a little bit of work on what we now casually call philosophy of race, I didn't understand. <laughs> um, that that's really what I was doing. And so when 9-11 happened, my first thought was, oh my God, a lot of Muslims are gonna be blamed for this. And I knew it, like I just knew it um, right there. And unfortunately I became, I was not necessarily in the line of fire because I was in a very liberal, hippie, idyllic part of Massachusetts, but I knew a lot of people would be really, um, targeted both legally and institutionally. And since my, my interest is in political philosophy, I do a lot of political theory. You know, I was really, I'm sorry to say, in a very good position to be able to watch things unfold and analyze them. Um, and in particular, I was interested in the Patriot Act and also, um, you know, the way that the Patriot Act was passed and the wording of the of the USA Patriot Act, it was passed six weeks after 9-11 unanimously. You imagine any bill in Congress ever being passed unanimously within six weeks. Like this tells you just what a kind of politically uh, incendiary, but also just kind of a, the currency that it was going to give a lot of politicians to be able to vote on this, right? To kind of <clears throat> make a pitch for security and to target non uh to non-whites if you will and while there's you know some lines in the patriot act about avoiding and not you know un unnecessarily targeting um our muslim uh neighbors and brethren it was very clear that the way that this is written it upended the entire notion of constitutional rights as we understood it and not only did it do that but it literally it it basically said you don't have rights to search and seizure you don't have rights to protect you because what we're going to do is called preemptive policing so in other words we're going to target you and then you can worry about your rights later so i suddenly realized that muslims were being racialized and so that was my first book was actually trying to think through a lot of the laws and um reading immigration history in the United States. So I took about a, I, I got a fellowship and I took a year off and I just read history because as philosophers were not taught to read history. And I read the history of many, many, many histories of immigration and saw the ways in which what we saw after 9-11 had happened over and over and over and over again. So it was really a pattern. So that's when I started to learn to think in patterns and to go by the time something like this happens this explosively it's been in the works for decades that and so that's literally um how i started kind of thinking about how muslims were being racialized because we don't you know there isn't 
at least for South Asians, you know, and Middle Eastern folks, there is not an easy racial identity. There's an ethnic, there's a geographic identity, most of it imposed through imperialist histories, right? I mean, even the thing called the Middle East is very much a kind of British category. The thing called South Asia or Asia is a consequence of imperialism and of empires. So this is how I started to understand how race functions and performs. So that was my first book. It's called Toward a Political Philosophy of Race. And then, um, and after that, I became very interested and I was writing about Guantanamo. I was a columnist for Salon for many years. And so I was constantly writing about the targeting of Muslims for three, four, five years. I had a blog and then Salon asked me to start writing um, for them. And then I went to Guantanamo in 2015 um, to watch a trial. Uh, unfortunately, I had a personal tragedy. And so I had to be flown home um, very soon, like literally within 24 hours of arriving. And I also write about that in Salon. But it was an interesting moment to kind of reflect on detention, prison, um, unfair targeting techniques. And I think that these things should be the topics of theory, right? I mean, this is this is reality. Theory is a way of attempting to account for the things that we see, trying to put words to it, trying to put a, a pattern to it. So after that, I moved to Emory and to the women's studies um, department. And in, in the course of doing this, I was writing about gender anyway for the last few years. So writing about how Muslim women were being understood. Um, and I didn't want to get into the various debates about to veil or not to veil. Those were completely irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. What was more interesting to me was how many opinions people had about it, how people treated women who veiled, and how this was at some level part of our cultural discourse, even if not um, always in such an explicit a fashion. So that's what I, I started tracing. And realized that there was a lot of discussion to be had about the way that Muslim women were faring. And at the same time, you know, um, learning about um, just the way that political discourse works very disparately from things that happen. So while the U.S. has always hailed itself as a as a nation of religious freedom, well, it's religious freedom for some and not for others. And so that's what prompted me to start looking at legal cases where Muslim women, and I, I realized there was so much that I had to kind of focus. So I ended up starting to focus on employment discrimination, Muslim women who had sued for religious discrimination in their workplaces. And so there I started reading many, many cases, 100, 150 cases and started to see a certain kind of pattern. So that's what I write about in the book. That's how I got there. <laughs> Sorry, very long answer. No, that was so wonderful because I my next question was going to be about unruly women and, and this book and the origins of this book. Um, no, again, like it's a very theoretically sophisticated uh, book. You do theory so well. It makes me actually like theory because I, it's, it's so, I know it can be really stressful. Um, and so, so thank you for that explanation. That, that explains a lot of, like I was saying there, you, you make a lot, you note patterns and you draw, pa you, you draw parallels um, and it just, you do it so well. So thank you. Thank you. You're my perfect audience because I want to write a theoretical book that non-specialists could read. So that was the purpose of this. Yeah, and and that's the other one of the other uh, very wonderful qualities about the book. I I feel like it's written in such a way that anybody would really appreciate it. 
Um, so yeah, so what are some of your, what are, what are some of the main arguments in your book? Um, you already mentioned some of the legal cases you're looking at. Uh, so if you want to talk about some methods also, that'd be helpful, but uh, particularly what are some major findings, arguments, or one essential argument if you want to condense it to one? Sure. Uh, I'm not sure I can do that. And you are talking to a very, very, very talkative philosopher. So I'm not sure I can reduce it, but I'm going to, I'll do my best. Um, well, I mean, part of, I think the, the framework for this book <clears throat> is to think, is to think about the multiple ways in which we hold on to this myth of liberalism, that we, that we are in a liberal society. Liberalism is often confused with being a democratic society. And I'm, I, at the end of the day, I study liberal political philosophy, which is kind of interesting. Like, I mean, I, my, I tease my students. I'm like, oh, I love reading John Locke. I love reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And they look at me cross-eyed. And I said, because they tell you the truth. They tell you exactly how things are, but you have to know how to read for them. And part of What's fascinating to me, I mean, liberalism, if, when it gets down to it, is a project of the British Empire. It's about bringing civilization to the poor backwards masses. It's about, that's what empire is. That's how India and Pakistan and Bangladesh were formed, because the British showed up and said, okay, we're going to teach these folks how to behave themselves. And there, there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, that is a mindset that also crosses the Kalapani, right? It crosses the oceans, it, it comes into North America, and it is still here as a legacy both of empire, but also um, of settler colonialism. So that's what I start with, is that we are committed to this, to this discussion of liberalism and equal rights and justice, but there's also other things going on. Right. This isn't just well, we just haven't gotten it right yet, because the same again, if you notice patterns over and over and over again, it tells us we haven't gotten it right or liberals haven't gotten it right. So the debate when I was in graduate school in philosophy was, well, is it and, you know, it's just a problem with the application of liberalism. The theory is perfect. And so I was, you know, so I would always be faced with that when I was giving talks. And so finally, part of the pursuit is to say, OK. Let's talk about how liberalism is a problem in theory as well. And, you know, my mentor, Charles Mills, who wrote The Racial Contract, um, he kind of opened up the space to think about this. And so that's the framework that I begin with. And in that framework, what I point out is actually those of us who don't fit, who don't conform very well, whether we're LGBT, uh, LGBTQ folks, whether we're um, trans folks, whether we're, you know, Muslim women who are visibly Muslim, right, who are conspicuous, as I, as I like to say, um, that the anxieties that we don't fit in are, are not our anxieties. They're the anxieties of the dominant culture. They are anxious that we don't fit in. They are anxious that we are not conforming to the kind of dictates that are held there. So, this is actually what I'm really kind of working through is to say, well, what is it about? Let's turn the lens instead of asking why Muslim women bail. Let's turn the lens and say, why is it a problem? What's the issue at hand? So that is the, the guiding, driving question through the book. What's the issue? And the issue is that 
there is a certain ideal that that women of color, that other, you know, non-standard individuals are are always being compared to, which is to say, well, we want, and liberal feminists are guilty of this too. Um, I would argue even radical feminists are guilty of this, at least in the 70s. And we know that they're certainly there with regard to TERFs, right, today. But there's a standard, and the standard is, are you suitably feminist? Do you look feminist? And so the, the question is actually not, are you really feminist? Because that question is confused with the question of whether or not you appear properly feminist. So what does that look like? Well, so I go through a bunch of liberal feminist theory and political theory and point out that um, the notion of being suitably feminist is, well, you're autonomous, but not too autonomous. You, you know, are strong, but not too strong. You kind of still look like, right, a, a woman in the way that we understand these so-called feminine ideals from the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Um, you know, but we don't want you to be too far out of that that boundary. So when you transgress that boundary, right, this is what is taken as, and this is what I call tongue-in-cheek unruly women. This is taken as defiance, as a refusal to conform, a refusal to fit in. And you see this in all kinds of language and political discourse. We see it with regard to Black women. I mean, now it's actually becoming much more common to kind of see and identify that. But this has always been the case with women who don't conform with certain subjects who are non-binary, right, or not suitably in their place. So that's kind of what I work through in the book. And methodologically, I turn to traditional theoretical, you know, political theory and liberal feminist theory. And then I also kind of think about um, power and the way that power, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm a continental philosopher. I read a lot. I've read a lot of continental philosophy. So I look at um, Foucault and Foucauldian understandings of how power works and how at some level, this is also about the, the ability to drive women to behave in certain ways, right? And how this becomes a kind of much larger cultural standard and discourse. I'll stop there if you want to jump in. No, that's that's so beautifully articulated. It it's it's absolutely perfect. Thank you. Right. So you speak in great. Let's now talk about some of the examples, some of the specific examples of where this theory become these theories become relevant. So you speak in great detail of about the politics of professionalism um, as examples of how Muslim women are discriminated against um, professionally and legally and um, juridically and so on. Um, you also draw connections between Muslim women's hijab and the the black women's hair. Um, what are can, can you tell our reader about some of these examples? Um, what yes, go ahead. Well, you were gonna you had a question. Did you want to? No, I was just gonna elaborate. But um, I will tell you actually that was for me a crucial turning point of the book. So really, the second half of the book. So the first half is motivated by what I described to you right? Liberalism and the anxieties of liberalism. The second half, though, something happened as I was finishing the book, like around chapter five, where I'm writing about the Supreme Court case um, that was decided in 2015, I believe now. Yeah, it must have been 2015. Um, and it was the EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch, where this young woman who was interviewing for a job for 
for Abercrombie and Fitch um, wore a hijab and she asked if it was going to be a problem. And the manager who entered and she passed all their tests with flying colors and the manager who interviewed her, um, you know, so she said, is this going to be a problem? The manager said, I don't know. I'll check. And she did. And it was. And so they didn't offer her the job. So she sued. The case goes all the way up through the Supreme Court and the the court <laughs> in this symbolic, I guess, decision, you know, ruled against Abercrombie and Fitch, ruled that it was religious discrimination. And if you read the newspapers, if you read magazines, people were just going crazy. And what they were doing was hailing this as this sign that religious religious discrimination against Muslims had ended once and for all. And I just thought, come on, people, are you kidding me? And so they were vilifying the head of Abercrombie and Fitch, who was a white gay man. Um, whose name is now escaping my my memory, but it's in the book. And, you know, and talking about his obsessive compulsive propensities and just, you know, how he needed to really control every aspect of the company. And I thought, this is a distraction. Like, this is really something that's, it can't be the end of religious discrimination. And sure enough, we see in 2023, we've had a, a, some interesting years, right? having to do with discrimination. So clearly these are these are not, we're not ending towards this perfect endpoint, like this is cyclical. And so when I did that, I started reading these cases. And in particular, there was one that I was writing about that happened in Michigan where um, this woman was walking into a small claims court in this place called Hamtramck, Michigan. And she was um, actually defending herself against um, enterprise rental car who was suing her for damages. And the judge in the case refused to let her um, plead her case. It was a small claims case. So it must've been less than like, you know, whatever it is, $5,000, unless she took off her, it turns out it was a niqab, not a hijab, a niqab, but he called it the veil. And um, and the niqab actually covers your, like below your eyes. So she said, no, I can't do this. And I have the transcript from it. And she said, no, I can't do this. It's against my religion. I'm happy to take it off in front of a female judge. And he goes, listen, I know it's not against your religion. And you know how I know this? Because Muslims have told me this. And I thought, well, who is she then? <laughs> what are you talking about? And so she refused to take it off and he held her, you know, he dismissed the case. And I wrote about it. I published about it. I was like, oh, this is about violating the, the tenets of transparency and liberalism. And then I find this other case. So I published this article. It becomes a chapter. And I find this other case that's really bizarre in ways that sounded similar, but I didn't quite understand. The other case takes place in Alabama. I think it's called Oxford, Alabama. And it took me a lot of research to figure out because, you know, the case is, it's called Spears versus KMG. So the plaintiff is Deandra Spears and KMG. I'm like, what is KMG? What is KMG? It turns out it's the holding company for IHOP. And so this woman worked in an IHOP and she was, and she wore a hijab and she was harassed by her coworkers constantly. But they also harassed her, not just about the hijab, but they called her the N-word. And that's when I realized, oh, this is actually a black woman who was wearing the hijab. And the case got decided in a very interesting way. So it was a district court judge and this woman had uh, filed the case 
under claims of religious discrimination, but she also, you know, had ver- had testimony that she was being addressed racially as well. And the the judge did not deny that that happened, but she said, look, there's not really racial discrimination here. But besides, if you'd wanted to do this, you should have filed it as a racial discrimination course uh, case, not a religious discrimination case. And I thought, this is a, this is really weird. Have, have, have they not heard of intersectionality like 30 years later? And so as I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about the dismissiveness, it reminded me of the Michigan case, Muhammad versus Park. And I went back there and I realized that there was a similar tone of dismissiveness, but it was silent, right? So how do you argue that there's something happening in the silence there, in the tone? Because it's on, it's in a transcript. And I went back and I realized that I'd missed altogether because there was one reference in the description, but not in the rest of the case, that this was a Black Muslim woman in Michigan. And that's when I realized, okay, there's actually a lot going on here, which is to say the similarities, right, between harassing Black women for their hair, harassing Muslim women, Black and non-Black, although generally, right, I think at least the popular imagination, and certainly mine was that most Muslim women are South Asian or Middle Eastern or, you know, of that descent, especially in Michigan, but it but Black Muslim women as well, that there is a certain, again, this kind of insistence that they don't know what's good for them. And it's especially pointed when it comes to African-American women. So in both cases, there was something that was really revealing that reminded me of the way that Black women have had to fight to wear their hair the way they want, which is to say a, a certain kind of condescension. You don't know what's good. You don't know what's professional. You don't know what you should be doing. And there was a similar kind of attitude against both of these women by the judges. It's like, you can't be Muslim. You're African American, right? And that, there's then a history of, as we know, Nation of Islam, right? Black Islam, which is actually also indigenous, is a a variant, but is from the 15th, 16th century. There is a, you know, a strain of Islam that's indigenous. And that this is very much considered an affront, an insult to white Americans who were Christian. It's like, what are you doing? Like, that's a foreign religion. Why are you not Christian? And part of the reason that many, you know, Muhammad, um, Malcolm X talks about this, right? Elijah Muhammad talks about this in Nation of Islam, that Christianity was often the religious frame that was used to accommodate and apologize for slavery. And so this is a kind of, it's a very interesting signaling and positioning against that history of slavery. And so that was what I realized in the second half of the book, that there was something else going on there. I don't think it's just limited to Muslim, uh, Black Muslims, but I started to then think about dismissal. Um, why, like dismissal as a certain, as something deeper than just, you know, dismissing a case. Like there's something, there's a kind of attitude. And I started to think about it culturally and wider to say, what happens when we dismiss the claims of people of color, of subjects of color, of um, LGBTQ populations, what happens when we go, come on, right? That, that dismissiveness, there's something, there's much more going on in there. So that's kind of, I, I just sketched it out briefly, but I'm now working on that, on, dis, on dismissal. 
So that's the, you know, as, as I finished the book, I, I realized what, what it was really about. No, I loved, um, I loved that because, because you talked about that in the book also that I originally thought it was this, and then I saw more examples and I, I saw more patterns, um, loved your discussion of the, um, of the, of, uh, you, cause you use the word address and dismissal and, um, excruciation yeah. as, as technical terms, and you do an excellent job, you know, discussing what, the, what they mean. And so theorizing this dismissal, uh, noting that it's not simply, you know, case dismissed, it's a case of, well, patriarchy, right? And a lot of misogyny and misogynoir in the case of black women. Um, and so the, cause I too, when you were discussing a lot of these cases, I I kept wondering, well, I wonder which cases, how is it determined which cases are going to be successful? And when, you know, how do the judges decide? How do the, how do the courts decide when it is indeed discrimination against Muslim women and when it's not? And then fortunately you have a whole chapter where you talk about I was I was curious to use the word anti-black only once I think or twice in that chapter, but the the entire chapter is about oh okay the 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 the, the issue here is black the anti-blackness right and so um so that that was going to be my next question how are these cases determined but I think you just actually the reason that I only use it a couple times in the book is because I'm all because first of all I was finishing and I and I had a much more complex issue that I was trying to deal with in the book which is to say that I there's a number of cases having to do with African immigrants Somalis and Sudanese and I think that what's happening there is more um more layered than anti-blackness and I didn't so I didn't want to reduce it to anti-blackness when I think that there are multiple other things also going on like anti-terrorist treatment right fears that these are terrorists which come up in a number of cases no no that's right you and, and you talk about that too i I'm, i've forgotten but uh thank you um and so it was again like that chapter was one of my favorite ones i especially see myself uh in in discussions of intersectionality because like you said some of these judges clearly have never heard of the word intersectionality which is really disturbing to think about so let's talk some more about these technical terms um the 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 terms that you, that I was interested in particularly are you have dismissal you, you just talked about excruciation address um, onto politics as these that you talk about how these are crucial terms for understanding the the psychic violence that liberalism and colonialism and imperialism perpetuate on um, Muslim women or women of color uh, or unruly women right whoever they are um, how are you using these terms and do you would you mind um, defining a couple of these terms for our audience sure um I'll start with excruciation. Well, uh, yeah, excruciation. So excruciation is, I think, the kind of fundamental condition for subjects of color, women of color, trans women, which is to say that there's a certain ideal that we are constantly being measured to, that we are supposed to aspire to. And then there's a position of failure. And so we're always caught between these two, right? So that we... Are often come up short, but if we do somehow manage to meet the goal, we're harassed anyway, so that we can't move either way. So, you know, you're either not black enough, you're not Muslim enough, you're too Muslim, you're not feminist enough, you're too feminist. You're so this is what I'm calling excruciation. Like you're it's almost like you're being tortured in such a way that you can't move, you can't get out of the way, and yet you're there's still this insistence that you meet a certain standard. So, you know, almost between a rock and a hard spot, as they say. But I think that this is a kind of existential status. Um, racial address 
is a notion that was developed by a colleague of mine when I was up at Hampshire and she's written several books on it, um, Monique Rolovs, and she calls, she talks about it as the cultural politics of address. And address is a, is a term that she uses. And I take from her work to kind of talk about um, how every, every single object that we encounter, even objects in the way that they encounter each other, like the placement of a screen and a lamp, and a big double screen, you know, that that it indicates something about what it's intended to do. Racial address is something similar. So the ways in which we talk to people or a mother might talk to her daughter. And so Roloff's um, uses Jamaica Kincaid's novels to talk about like the relationships between mothers and their daughters and what it means to be a good girl and to iron and to dress properly and to sit with your knees together, you know, this kind of thing that these are gendered addresses, but there's a similar kind of phenomenon of racial address where even walking down the street, you know, how one comports oneself tells us a lot, which is not visible, not heard, not spoken about who that person is and how they understand their relationship to their environment. So somebody, let's say who, um, is African-American or is Black, a Black male walking down the streets of Atlanta, for example, in certain parts of town, you understand them, even if they're not necessarily visibly, um, even if their visible identity isn't Black, there is a certain kind of understanding about how precarious their relationship might be to their environment. And so I use that actually to talk about how I started to understand the way that judges spoke to plaintiffs or to different kind of <clears throat> claimants. Um, and that the racial part of it then comes out in that interaction in all kinds of sophisticated ways where you don't ever have to use the term. Uh, and I find that very helpful to kind of excavate things that are otherwise really hard to dig out, right? So why do Muslim women have a particular kind of encounter when they um, when they face judges or other, you know, official authorities? Um, and then onto politics, it probably underlies all of it. Um, and this is actually a play on Foucault's notion of biopolitics. And so he has a bunch of lectures in 75, 76, they are translated into English under society must be defended. And he talks about race there actually. Um, I think in a very interesting way, very important way, but, um, but part of what those lectures are famous for are called biopolitics. And so this idea that um, laws and disciplinary power kind of intersect to cut uh, against or in favor of, as he calls them, well, subjects, people, but subjects um, through different kinds of bio, biological features. I build on that to kind of say, it's not always biological. I mean, that often it's, it's ontological. It's about how we understand the place of a terrorist, how we understand who we associate with terrorism, how we understand who's a criminal and who's not, that these are, you know, in the Greek ontos, the essences of things that 
that these become the essences that we associate with certain kinds of figures. And it's not always racial or skin color. It might be language or accent or something else, but it really speaks to how we understand how populations get divided, not based necessarily on the way that they look, but based on certain um, associations that people have with how people look if you will, or how they're, uh, what kind of clothes they wear, what kind of accents they have, or um, what kind of how they wear their hair, so that these are ontological issues. And so this is how a lot of laws and politicians get a, get around, they evade the claim of discrimination by saying, we're not talking about skin color or features or something like that. We're talking about making America safe from terrorists. And that's a kind of ontopolitical gesture. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, um, in your research, did you come across any other other cases that you couldn't discuss in the book or that you didn't have the space or the time to discuss in the book um, that were maybe surprising or interesting and that we would want to hear about? Oh, my God. So many, so many. Um, yeah, like there's a there's a couple of cases actually in um, New Jersey and Philadelphia of law enforcement. Um, police officers, Kimberly Webb, uh, who sues the city of Philadelphia because she comes to work in a hijab and that's fine for a little while. And then the city's, uh, the police force d- decides that that's unacceptable. And, you know, she'd been wearing it for years. So it was kind of interesting that there was a sudden, this, you know, sudden turnaround. Um, and I, it happens in 2005. So several years after, after 9-11, um, But there's another case which I thought was really interesting in the logic, which was about prison guards and how certain prison, there was one in particular, I'm forgetting the case right now, the name, but, you know, where she was wearing the hijab and her bosses insisted that she couldn't wear it because it, actually, and the court ruled in favor on the grounds that by wearing the hijab, it transgressed this assumption that prisons were a secular secular place or a place where, you know, religion uh, wasn't going to be, you know, a huge part of the interaction. And so it violated the assumption of neutrality. When what was interesting to me was actually the opposite logic would have had much more weight, I think. If you let somebody wear the hijab, then that suggests that actually, right, there's room for all kinds of religion and it doesn't necessarily have to be discriminatory so you know some very i mean more subtle findings but that's that was the stuff that was really interesting to me and probably the other one which is a little provocative but is to say that you know lawyers and judges are not necessarily as well educated as we would like to think right that there's a lot of learning that they they know how to litigate but they don't necessarily know a lot about the world. And that's given that we're the only country that actually requires an undergrad degree before going to law school. It's fascinating how little lawyers and judges know (laughs) about the world. So I'm sure that will piss off a lot of people. Sorry, but I mean, it's fascinating. It's like, how is it that judges can be so ignorant? Um, You know, but we've also watched the Supreme Court over the last seven or eight years. So I'm sure a lot of people have the same question. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so as we end, our last question to the author is to tell us about any uh, current research they're working on that we can look forward to in the near future. Well, I'm developing the dismissal 
uh, stuff much more. And I'm going to go back to a book that I've been working on for a while, but then put it away to finish the, the Unruly Women book, which is to think about race and violence as kind of um, as an intrinsic part of American law that part of the history of American law, the violence is embedded in it. And so I go back to my favorite author, John Locke and political theory and the 1600s to show how so much of um, what we think of as legal or neutral law is in fact embedded in creating a world that's advantageous to settlers. And that law has been kind of passed down with the history shrouded and camouflaged so that now we just think we know what objective neutral legal legal justice looks like. So I'm trying to kind of peel back the layers of that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for that. I'm looking forward to it. And when it's out, I'll uh, be sure to give it a read and assign in my classes. Okay, Falguni, that's all the questions I have. Thank you so much for spending time with me and discussing your book. Thank you so much. It was such a joy to, to spend time talking with you today. Thanks for us. All right. So that was my interview with Falguni Shet on her book, Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, published in 2022 with Oxford, a book that I very highly recommend. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you again soon. Salam.